Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome to the abyss. Yeah. Holy guacamole, guys. I had never seen this movie. Such a mistake. Uh, Yeah, genuine mistake to miss this movie. This movie's so fucking good. It's written and directed by James Cameron, who's made one of your favorite movies of all time. I'm sorry, your favorite movie of all time, Terminator 2. I know. It it came out in 1989. Anything that was B... JD before Judgment Day, right? Yeah, BJD, yeah. as it's known. I just assumed it was like, oh, it was you know fledgling Cameron just no. trying to, make, and then alas, this, I was deeply misproven. And Aliens is also came before that, and and Aliens is a great movie. I know. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to justify this. <laughs> yeah. Let's well, listen to the trailer. Yeah. From James Cameron, the writer and director of The Terminator and Aliens, comes The Abyss. Here's a bottomless pit, baby. Two and a half miles straight down. It was alive. It was like a, like a dance of light. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't think they mean us any harm. I don't know how I know that. Talk to me, bud, please. Do you hear me? He's coming up fast. You can't leave me here alone. You never backed away from anything in your life. Now fight! It's such an intense movie. Such an intense movie, an intense trailer. Yeah, the whole it's, nine. it's so epic. It's so big. It like all the effects feel as big as any modern movie, or maybe better because it's like I, like they just went down there and shot this stuff. Yeah. They like built these things. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously the precursor to a guy who's gonna go build half of the Titanic and totally. then sink it. Right. You know, like this, this so many is, pre- precursors were happening here. Yeah, now, yeah. Okay, so to be a little bit more specific, my connection to the abyss was on. The extreme feature DVD of Terminator 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I watched a, you know, a making of the movie, and they were, it was very pointed in discussing the CGI for like the, the liquid. Yeah, the, the, the tentacle goo. monster yeah, the tentacle. thing. And, and like how it was the precursor for the T 1000, and mm-hmm. how like, you know, Cameron was very specific with its use and didn't want to overdo it, and blah, blah, blah. And then yeah, he like, didn't this use... is, of course, pre Avatar when it's like you've right. created whole worlds. But at the time, exactly. he was like, it's got to be very specific and nuanced. And well, because, and I think we've talked about this before. But he knew where the limit was like Mm -hmm. he he knew what it couldn't do and didn't do any of those things. Mm -hmm. But that's like a hard skill to know is like how much to overextend your use of CG. And he he knew just where to stop and just where to start the practical effects. But oh my God, you guys, there is so much drama around the making of this fucking movie. Yeah, this is one of the craziest makings of. Yeah, even just like skimming the IMDb page, I was like, well, it was like the first line I saw was Ed Harris almost punched James Cameron and or did. He actually did punch him. Yeah, James Cameron is certainly a famous, they call him a dictator more than a director. You know, he's famously an asshole, but also one of those genius assholes who's like, his genius matches it enough that he yeah. can get away with it. He backs it up, right? Yeah, yeah. 
But, but he puts his people through a lot of shit. Yeah, you got if you're those. working with him, your your feet are held to the fire. Yeah. When he was a kid in high school, James Cameron went to this lecture basically where this guy that was the first human to breathe fluid through his lungs in a series of experiments gave this lecture at James Cameron's high school. It leads James Cameron to write a short story about a group of scientists in a laboratory at the bottom of the ocean. Jump to when he's making Aliens, which was in 1986, he sees this National Geographic film about remote operated vehicles deep in the North Atlantic Ocean. So it reminds him of this story that he had written as a kid. Mm -hmm. At that time, though, he thought a film about a group of scientists didn't seem commercial enough. So, of course, (laughs) he changes it to his blue collar workers. Oil drillers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some guys that are just like, we're just your regular old. We're truck driving, hat wearing. (laughs) (laughs) What was interesting about it, though, is the fact that Ghostbusters 2 was like one of the top grossing films that year. Oh, yeah. And The Abyss was considered a box office flop. Yes. Of course, Ghostbusters being about scientists, that's what that connection was, that he wasn't (laughs) commercially appealing enough. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, it's also that, like, The Abyss cost a lot. Yeah, it was like $70 million budget. Yeah, this was like... Which seems like small fry now, of course. Well, especially for a James Cameron budget, you know? (laughs) Yeah, like anything water-related... With any movie shoot, I feel like would be intense because it's such the hurry up and wait game, right? Yeah. But for someone like you were saying, this like mad genius James Cameron guy, these actors had a lot to both say and then never say again. (laughs) Okay, so he's a perfectionist. Yeah. So most of the underwater filming took place in a half-completed nuclear reactor facility in Gaffney, South Carolina. Forty percent of all the live-action principal photography was shot underwater. So he ends up building the largest underwater set in the world, seven million gallon tank, (laughs) forty feet deep. But even though they were trying to basically make it seem like you're in the deep ocean by putting a giant tarp and a bunch of like black plastic beads that were floated on top. The surface, it got all fucked up because there was a violent storm that destroyed the tarp. Oh, no. Yeah, so even with all of those steps that they took, they ended up having to move all of the shooting to night. Oh, man. So, shooting at night in the water when it's probably chilly already is like (laughs) a violent storm ruins something. This seems like a perfect backdrop to everything that ensued. I think at one point, too, just the tank sprang a leak and it lost like 100,000 gallons Would every not second. Me at yeah, all. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it totally, series of fuck ups. Right. Well, because you had mentioned to me before that James Cameron had, not that he disavowed the movie because it is pretty, it's a masterpiece, but like this was one of the worst productions he's ever had, if not the worst. He yeah, he's, like, he basically said, like, like yeah, I, I, I thought it would be hard. I didn't know it would be this hard. Yeah. And I regret putting everybody through this and myself. Right. He tends to use a lot of the same actors over and over again. But notice how he's never used any of these people again. Yeah. Mostly because they said they would never work with him again. It really is surprising to me, until I know that, that, like, Ed Harris and James Cameron never yeah. worked together again. Because they put such amazing work on screen yeah. in this movie. Totally. So, very few of the scenes involved in the film were done by stunt people. So, first of all, all of the cast members had to become certified divers before filming even began. But, like, all of the scenes where the characters are running from water and they're, like, dodging exploding parts of the rig, like, those are all actors. They're not stunt people. And they're actually exploding the rigs. Yeah, exactly. So, just, okay, step one of why filming underwater would be shitty. The water in the two tanks was, like, heavily chlorinated. Uh So, everybody's hair was turning green, sometimes even white. So, everybody had to put Vaseline on their hair and their skin because they're filming underwater for, like, hours at a time. Wait, I didn't know that chlorine turns your hair green. 
Is that true? You've never heard that? I haven't heard You've that. You lived under a rock all of this time. That's crazy. That's like this. Yeah. What, yeah I'm sure I've heard that at one point, but I guess like, it never entered my brain. Like how yeah. long? Do, I, I guess if you're going to cover it later, we'll find out how long yeah. it takes. But well, yeah. my hair used to always turn green. I was on the swim team. So it's not, I mean, oh. it's like, why does your hair turn green in the swimming pool? It's because of the chlorine. Turns out it's actually not. We'll talk about it later. Oh, yeah, all right. Well, that's Chlorine's like exciting. a wingman in the whole in the whole game. Anyway, so these actors had to put Vaseline on their, their skin and hair. But just think about that. Just the irritation of that. Ugh. Okay. Now let's move on to the scene where Bud drags Lindsay. So Ed Harris drags Master Antonio, whatever, back to the rig. That's really Mary Elizabeth, and she's holding her breath. Then when he drags her back, he's actually beating on her chest to try to resuscitate her while she's, like, soaking wet and, like, half naked, right? So apparently Mary Elizabeth stormed off the set when she was informed that the camera broke in the middle of the scene and she refused to perform such a difficult thing over and over again (laughs) because, of course, Cameron's like, let's do it again, and she storms off and is like, we're not animals! This is one of the big ones, and this is what led to Ed Harris punching James Cameron. During one scene, Ed Harris was supposed to hold his breath at the bottom of the set, uh-huh. but he ran out of air and you know gestured that he was out of air. But his safety diver got hung up on a cable and couldn't get to him. Oh, my God. So then another crew member gave Harris a regulator, but it was upside down and caused him to suck in water. Oh so then somebody no. else comes over, rips it out of his mouth, like puts it the right way. Meanwhile... James Cameron's still fucking filming. Right. So he gets punched. Don't cut, don't cut. And apparently later while he was driving home, Ed Harris like pulled over and and just like spontaneously started crying because he's like, I almost died today. Right, right. (laughs) Like James Cameron almost drowned at least least one time during the whole thing. It's fucking... Right. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, it's a it's a really dangerous thing. You know, there's a quote that my brother really loves. It's pain is temporary. Film is forever. Right. But there's an extent to which you stop putting your fucking people. You don't treat them like animals, right. you know, like well, there's like a point at which you can still get the shot and not be in danger. Especially like drowning, dude. Like yeah. that's one of the, that scene where she is drowning. And she you purposely like, drowns oh, herself. Like, yeah. And, but like when the water's filling up, you could just like see the panic and it feels so real on a cinematic level. But then you realize you're like, you're actually doing this. Yeah. What yeah, the exactly. fuck? She's like, actually terrified. Yeah. It's and drowning death for some reason to me is like one of the scariest totally. deaths. Like I've heard people say that it's apparently peaceful or right, some bullshit like that. Like pass out but there's something about like that, su- like that trappedness, the yeah. suffocation as it's like, you. oh my God. It's well, like watching it happen. I'm basically. feeling it now. Like what yeah, exactly. the fuck? <laughs> Now, as if drowning wasn't bad enough, during filming, Ed Harris was on a strict diet and demanded cabbage as a snack. Okay, where, where is this going? going? <laughs> I know. It became almost unbearable for him and everybody else because he was constantly farting. In fact, there's one scene where he's in his diver suit and he farted and the smell was so intoxicating that he actually vomited inside the suit. No way. Oh, man. <laughs> So the scene was obviously cut. Oh, my God. And it took hours for them to, like, resurface, clean Clean out the suit, submerge it, and reshoot it again. And apparently Cameron was so furious about it that he... started placing air fresheners in all the actors and crew members' suits to ensure that there was no repeat of the incident. And also, Ed Harris got pink eye during filming, and he had to wear contacts. (laughs) So many things happened to this guy. Right. Throwing up in a diving suit is a after nightmare. Like, but after fart you farted, <laughs> you're so like self disgusted, right? You're like, oh, I'm sick. Oh, you're disgusting. Oh, like, 
that's the thing. It's like it, all the air is trapped in there with you. There's nowhere Shut for it to go. It's like you're underwater. <laughs> it's a goddamn oh nightmare. Oh my god! So imagine that. It's like drowning and being throwing up from your own <laughs> oh fart. My god. So Ed Harris has publicly refused to talk about his experiences working on the film, and he's like, I'm, I'm not talking about Abyss, and I never will. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, because have you seen this the documentary Under Pressure, the making of the Abyss? No, I haven't. I haven't either. But this makes me feel like I have got to see. Yeah, I want to see the that craziness. Because Mary Elizabeth Mestrantonio was saying, she's like, the abyss was a lot of things. Fun to make was not one of them. I believe she that. She suffered a physical and emotional breakdown. The cast and crew called the film by names like Son of Abyss, The Abuse, mm. and Life's Abyss, and Then You Dive. <laughs> Which is and Then You too, Dive? Yeah. <laughs> so clever. much on all those. So great. They really took their broken heart and yeah. made it into art <laughs> and fart, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Now, okay, so as shitty as all of that was, the awesome things about The Abyss were, like, how huge it was in the CGI world, mm-hmm. right? So, like, that scene where the tentacle is coming out of the water, that was one of the first scenes that they shot because it was basically written so that it could be taken out in case the CGI was shitty. Oh. Like, they wanted to give the CGI effects team, like, as much possible time mm-hmm. in case it was crappy and of course he was referred to what's the what is george industrial light and magic yeah yeah and they were the gold standard they actually pixar was spun off from industrial light and magic and they actually like sold that because they were like this company isn't working so they sold it to steve jobs and then it became pixar but yeah industrial light and magic did most of the main like elements of cg that you saw that like won a lot of oscars through the early 90s and late 80s well it's crazy to think that the actors you know since they didn't know what the fuck the thing was going to look like Mm -hmm. at the time they were just interacting with a length of heater hose that was being held up by the crewman. It's like, whoa. That's pretty yeah. funny. Sort of like how in The Mummy, they were just like, here's a picture of Arnold Vosloo. Yeah, yeah. Spooky. Well, it's great that they gave the CG team as much time as possible because I've also heard that one of the main reasons that CG looks bad in movies is that they ran out of time. And I kind of wonder if it is if it is better to have that sort of all or nothing vibe of being mm. like, this scene is going to be written so that we could straight up take it out because I yeah. would rather not have anything than have some garbage. Ed Harris gets fully submerged in what's called a perfluorocarbon liquid, which allows him to breathe in liquid. And it was that pink goo. Yeah, it's that pink goo. And <laughs> I actually covered this in the Galaxy Quest episode, but it's worth mentioning again here. The movie actually shows a real demonstration of this on the mouse. Mm-hmm. And they actually kind of drown this mouse for a little bit. This scene was actually cut from the British release of the movie because of perceived animal cruelty. Yeah. And, you know, it's an experiment that was done for the movie, not for the experiment of, like, showing that this could happen. Right, so exactly. It was unnecessary <laughs> on a certain yeah, level. But I remember watching it thinking, like, God, this seems really fucking real. Yeah. And, like, watching it squirm around and stuff was pretty It's pretty disturbing, disturbing to watch. It was interesting to see that they had, like, five different rats that were used for five different takes. The, the mouse that ended up in the movie actually lived and only died of natural causes like shortly before the movie's release or something like that the only reason that james cameron cut away to the actor's faces away from the mouse like writhing around was to avoid showing the rat defecating from momentary panic as they began breathing the fluid Uh, so um, perhaps unsurprisingly the american humane association rated the film unacceptable because 
basically saying the rat was actually subjected to the anxiety of being submerged in the liquid and it panics and it's blah, blah, blah. It doesn't well, know what's going that's on. That's the thing. It's like, even if we can breathe this partial liquid ventilation thing, I can't imagine it would feel good to transition from air no, to liquid. Because of that fear of drowning and right. how uncomfortable. Like, even when you, you know, something goes down the wrong pipe, you have a goddamn yeah. attack. Like, this isn't something that you come across in life. No. Like, breathing liquid. But yeah, like, we want to use this technology for helping premature babies live a lot longer because their lungs will collapse otherwise oh. we want to use it for emphysema like we don't have total liquid ventilation like in the movie but we have partial liquid ventilation mm -hmm. and so when your lungs don't work so well like in the case of emphysema we may partially drown you to save your life now is emphysema i always forget is that where, like you have fluid in your lungs it's or scar it's tissue scar that tissue. develops on the alveolar sacs and it basically reduces the amount of surface area in your lungs that can take in oxygen okay yeah by the way, what allows this liquid to work like this, it's perfluorocarbons is what it's called. And that was the basis for the oxygenating blood substitute mm -hmm. that I had mentioned back in the virtuosity episode. Because it wasn't actual human blood, but it was like fake human blood. And it involved this perfluorocarbon stuff because it can carry oxygen. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm down with that, but I can totally get on board with like Let's, not doing it to yeah. rats for no reason <laughs> and then just hold steady yeah hold steady man it took a shit because it was so scared yeah that's yeah. sad that's like, fucked up fuck dude i wanted to look into some submarine technology and there's these mini submarines which are commonly known as midget submarines and it's technically any submarine that's under 150 tons it's usually operated by a crew of one or two people. So they usually worked with like a mothership and they would be secretly deployed underwater for a few hours at a time, go off to a mission and then get recaptured by the mothership. Okay. And there's a crazy story surrounding these things during Pearl Harbor. Because about an hour before the first Japanese planes arrived, five midget submarines, each carrying two men with two torpedoes each, got there secretly just offshore hanging out in the waters that are too shallow for a normal submarine. Mm -hmm. And the torpedoes were twice as explosive as the bombs that the planes were carrying. And the plan was to use this Operation Hawaii mm -hmm. to combat test the new midget submarines, having them surface right before the air assault started and then unloading all their torpedoes. And the men on the subs knew that they were likely going on a suicide mission, and they were even given swords and pistols to make sure that they weren't caught. Okay. Which I was like, if you got a pistol, you need a sword. <laughs> But this was still like a concern of whether or not to do these submarine tactic at all, because if the subs wound up alerting the Americans to their existence, then the whole surprise attack would be blown. Right. But they wound up going ahead with it anyway. But what ended up happening was a U.S. ship wound up spotting a periscope early in the morning, about an hour before the raid happened. And they actually fired on the submarine and sank it, not knowing that there were four others also in the bay. And this information started running up the chain, getting to the Admiral. And I guess the Admiral on Pearl Harbor was still getting dressed in his quarters. And that's when the air raid started. So this information about the midget submarines like never made it all the way up the chain that this attack was happening before the attack actually happened. Why do you think we don't really hear about this that because much? Because the amount of firepower that came from the air was so much bigger than the amount of firepower that came from the submarines sure. that it's like a footnote in history. In Japan, they, they said that one of the submarines had actually sunk the USS Arizona. Uh -huh. And they think that that may have happened, but may not have happened. So these things like they became heroes in Japan. So when it was all done, four of the five submarines had been destroyed. But the one that survived has a pretty interesting element to it. Okay. First of all, it couldn't make it all the way into the harbor because the compass was broken and it kept running into a reef over and over again. Oh, no. And eventually it got caught on, and stuck on some coral. 
And then during the fight, a U.S. destroyer missed the submarine but exploded the coral and freed the ship. That also knocked the crew unconscious. The pilot eventually woke up with a concussion and his ship was filling with deadly fumes and he tried to scuttle the ship, but the fuse didn't light because the whole thing was what like... What does that mean, scuttle? It means destroy the submarine itself okay. be- so that the Americans can't know that we- they had that technology. Uh-huh. But that didn't work. And then he wound up washing up unconscious on the beach and became prisoner of war number one. Oh my God, the first? The first. Holy shit. So... That's the story, the untold story of Pearl Harbor's midget submarines. Oh, man, I just a not very politically correct way of referring to those oh, submarines, well, right, guys? I guess, yeah, that's not my term. I, I guess is it though? Because like, I guess it's incorrect to use like the word midget just I meaning small. But yeah, all right, all right I'm just thinking. <laughs> You're being ridiculous. I'm like, right all right, now. I'm like answering your question. <laughs> Because it was just like good timing because right as you said that, I was like, well, could you imagine that as the Michael Bay Pearl Harbor? And then you were just like midget submarines. I was like, yeah, I feel like Michael Bay would be like, no, I need everything big. The biggest biggest submarines. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want no midget subs. (laughs) This movie's about exploring the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's about exploration. Learning about what's at the depths. Yeah, what's at the depths. I mean, it really is this kind of final frontier for us in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And when you look at some of these creatures, they look like they're fucking aliens anyway. Some of the designs on these, the designs on these like crazy deep sea creatures are like crazier than any alien stuff I've seen in any movie. It's real H.R. Geiger shit down there. (laughs) Yeah. So I just wanted to look into the evolution of atmospheric diving suits or ADS. Mm. That's probably what I'm going to say because atmospheric is going to Trip me up, guys. Just go on the ads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've been trying to develop these ads since like the 19th century, which is true. Mm. But then in 1911, one of the first big ones was this suit designed by Chester E. McDuffie. He made a suit out of aluminum alloy that weighed about 550 pounds and reached 213 feet in 1915. Pretty good for 1915. Yeah, not bad. Jumping forward to 1920, there was one made out of manganese bronze. It could carry a four-hour supply of oxygen and a telephone. Wait, God. what? <laughs> yeah, it could not only, yeah, like at least some way of reaching the surface. Oh, it's like a wire down yeah, yeah. through the thing. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? How did he? And then how does it get it? It's like yeah, a headset, exactly. I'm sure, that's like built into the helmet. I thought those get fried by the water. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So then they started fucking around with like iron and steel in the 20s. But then in 1930, there was Iron Mike that was built by the New York Empire Marine Salvage Engineering Company. You're like, God. That's who built Mike Tyson? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're cruising for <laughs> I just also mostly like these some of these early companies it's like 17 names in one you're like yeah. all right the New York Empire Marine Salvage Engineering Company we get it <laughs> right but they were specifically looking for like sunken treasure and valuable goods and stuff so that's wow. the initial thing of like did were we interested in you know ocean exploration blue or, just, or yeah how many you know sunken ships have treasure on them Very I do human, like that it? idea of like man pirates have been around for a long time they've got there's got to be <laughs> yeah. Gold littered on the bottom of the sea. Yeah. So then in Germany, the, they made Iron Duke that drove down to 450 feet to salvage sunken treasure from the wreck of the Egypt. The diver was able to recover 10 tons of silver and five tons of gold. That was at that time the greatest treasure salvage of all wow. time. So it's not without precedent. Yeah, like, they Fuck it, dude. Worked. Let's go. Let's worked. do it. But like in terms of modern suits that we start to recognize, it's not until 1969 when they came up with the gym suit that was named after Jim Jarrett, who's a 
diver and underwater explorer. Not the gym suit, like a running suit. No, like, like G-Y-M. G-Y-M. <laughs> gym track suit. Yeah. Then in 1987, there was the Newt Suit 1000. The Newt Suit. Yeah, Newt Suit. Newt, Newt Suit, suit Riot. Oh, yeah. okay. Riot. I was doing Boot Throw Scoot Boogie. Throw back a bottle of beer. <laughs> Wait, Boot Suit Boogie? Boogie? Boot Scoot and Boogie. No, I don't know that one. Oh, yeah. Growing up in Colorado, they made us do a lot of fucking line dancing and oh, shit as in, in grade school. I was like, I don't want to do the Boot Scoot and Boogie teach. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so in 1987, this is when it starts to take shape in terms of where we're, where we're coming to today. So this was a lightweight ADS. Yeah, I like it. And that was invented and patented by Nutco, it's spelled N-U-Y-T-C-O, but the guy's name is Phil what? Newton, and it's the Newt suit. So I feel like even though it's spelled crazily, you're supposed to say Nutco. Like I don't know, right? All right, who cares? But the point is that these guys are in the game for a while, even up until today. The Nutco research guys. These days, there's something called the exosuit, and this was also designed by Nutco. Nutco Research Limited. And the exosuit is what has been referred to as what Tony Stark would wear underwater. Okay, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Everything Man, has that. to be compared to the Iron know, Man suit. Anytime I, there's a suit, it's compared big, to Iron Man. It's a big suit to fill, dude. Like, yeah, well, it's true. <laughs> but this fucking suit is actually equipped for the abyss, as they say. So the exosuit is the result of more than 35 years of research, and it's a $600,000 ADS that's capable of taking a human 1,000 feet underwater at surface pressure. Wow. Yeah. So it's six and a half feet tall. It's also made of aluminum alloy, which is crazy that that was one of the earliest models, but I don't know. And it weighs more than 530 pounds, but when it's submerged, the weight is completely neutralized. So this allows scientists to research creatures at extreme depths where the pressure is like 30 times that of what it is on land. It's fitted with an oxygen system with 50 hours of life support, which is fucking crazy in yeah. terms of just being able to like go down. Or it's whatever. a suit like, yeah. that you can live for that long, like yeah. a day and a half. Yeah. And the way the system works is that there's like carbon dioxide is removed chemically and oxygen is replenished to match your metabolic rate, whether you're at work or wow. at rest. Right? Fuck. So if you're thinking about... The smart systems just monitoring you and knowing exactly how you should have it. It makes so much sense. It does. Fucking Fitbit. Fitbits can work. Totally makes sense. Yeah, exactly. When you get to... When you think about like a wetsuit dive, you if you're going to these same depths, you need this kind of crazy combination of gases like oxygen, nitrogen, and helium. Mm -hmm. But in the exosuit, you're basically breathing the same exact atmosphere that you do now, which is like 21% oxygen. So it just acts as though you're not going under the water. That's correct. That's incredible. Isn't it? Because then you don't have to worry about decompression sickness or anything like it. Exactly, the bends. Yeah. Baby does not got the bends, and it's great. (laughs) But so exosuit is also equipped with powerful LED lights for full visibility. They have a teardrop-shaped viewport that lets the operator look down to chest level. It's propelled by four 1.6-horsepower foot-controlled thrusters with foot pads on the bottom, so the pilot has full fucking control of where he or she is going. It has 18 oil-filled rotary joints on the arms and legs where, like, the hands are so dexterous that people with only an hour of training are able to pick a dime off the ground. Whoa. After an hour of training, right? It so has it's just like, super user-friendly. super user-friendly, which is nuts. Because before you're like, oh, you have to go through so much training, but now any blue-collar worker can so make any Ed Harris on. to be found. <laughs> That's right. But so basically, like, the, the suits are going to be equipped with, like, scalpels and syringes and other tools and, like, little suction cuppy things or, like, suction tubes that will be able to pull specimens or organisms into these little plexiglass cartridges. Mm. 
And the exosuit is going to be accompanied by its little like sidekick called the Deep Reef Rove, which is a remote operating vehicle that's fitted with three cameras. They're tethered to a two and a half centimeter diameter tether with copper and fiber optic elements. So like the diver is just going to take these specimens, put them in front of the camera. Then the peeps up above on the surface are going to be like, you can discard that. Either like tell them whether or not they want to keep them or at least have some idea of what these fucking things are. Yeah. Right? It's fucking nuts. Well, it's kind of like how spacewalks work where you have like an entire team of people watching every camera that's on your thing and to tell you like move your arm an inch to the left right. and you'll see the screw that's the exact one that you want to do. I mean, it totally makes sense, but also to think that you can actually keep that specimen alive. Because These... you can keep the pressure that's at that exactly. state. Yeah, yeah, because that's one of the biggest hurdles we have is like they can really only go off of anatomy right now because most of the time they would die by the time mm. they got to the surface. Well, now if you can see them actually living, you can study these these creatures. Yeah. Now, the reason why there's not anything else that I could find that's written about this thing is because back in 2014, the exosuit was just about to be used as a test tool on the Stephen J. Barlow Blue Water Expedition 100 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. So they were supposed to be exploring a certain part of the ocean called the canyons, which is named after these like big steep drop-offs from the continental shelf to almost 10,000 feet below. The purpose mm. of which is, of course, studying these new these organisms that are bioluminescent. Mm. Yes. I'll talk about that later. But it's like they're, the exosuits are going to be put to that area of ocean where it's like just out of reach for scuba peeps, but not quite deep enough for like full submarine expeditions mm -hmm. so like you've talked before about how like no one has been as deep as james cameron has That's right <laughs> is that and, and then i like barely touched on his deep sea challenger thing that's fucking nuts well yeah let me talk about the deep sea challenger because james cameron being the insane badass that he is for people who don't know he's an inventor and a serious scuba diver mm -hmm. he decided to build a machine that could take him to the deepest part of the ocean which is known as challenger deep which is a part of the mariana trench which is off the coast of Japan, or like mm. it's really the Pacific. So he builds this one man sub that looks like a vertical torpedo, and he takes it down the 6.8 miles, making Cameron the second manned expedition and the first solo expedition to ever make it there. The only other expedition was in 1960, right. and they spent very little time at the bottom. And I think that was Jacques Picard. Yeah, Jacques Picard. Because <laughs> I, I kept being like, was it Jacques Cousteau? There was right. a Jacques. <laughs> right, Jacques. And it's Jacques Picard. But that's, uh, what an icon, eh? Yeah. Jacques Cousteau. So there have been robot expeditions and shit like that, but no other like actual people have gone there. And from another perspective, if you think about it, fewer people have gone to the bottom of the ocean than have been on the moon. Right. Because there's only been three people who have gone to the bottom of the ocean. Twelve people have walked on the moon. 100%, yeah. So what's crazy is some of the pressures involved at that depth. When Cameron gets into the sub at the surface... By the way, he made a whole movie about this called Deep Sea Challenge 3D. Oh, boy. Okay. Of course, it was a 3D movie. Sure. It's James Cameron. I mean, and that, that's a good one. That's a, that's a you good want, one. You want, yeah, if there's yeah. ever going to be a thing that you want to see in 3D, because he actually had 3D cameras on the outside of his ship, and so like you can see in 3D the actual stuff that yeah. was down there at the bottom of the ocean. Wow. So when he gets into the sub at the surface, he has like a fair amount of room around him. Mm -hmm. But by the time he's at the bottom, the glass in front of him is almost touching his nose. Because it's compressed that much. Oh my god! Yeah, which that is would a be terrifying so scary. thing. Yeah. Talk about claustrophobia. Fuck, fuck. Seriously, 
He wound up taking tons of like 3D images and soil samples and other scientific readings during the three hours that he spent exploring the bottom. By the way, he was supposed to explore more like six hours, but there was a hydraulic fluid leak in the lines controlling his manipulator arm, and it obscured Cameron's ability to see outside the only viewing port. He also lost some of the thrusters mm-hmm. on the thing. Could you imagine this guy? So he cut the thing short and ascended. By the way, it's at 36,000 feet down at the bottom. If you think about where planes fly, they fly at about thirty to 35,000 feet. So right. as high up from the surface planes fly is how below the ocean he was. Right, understood. So apparently he didn't see any fish or any living creatures more than an inch long. But he saw shrimp-like bottom feeders, nothing gigantic or even like pretty small. But with the pressures, who knows how big those shrimp actually are. Right. Like they could totally, if we brought them up to the surface, they would like expand... That's- God, I'm sorry. I'm just like, my mind is blown in terms of how perception shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, visibility makes all the difference, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Wow. Like how big something is relative to you at that pressure. It's yeah. hard to know. I didn't realize that there was a correlation in terms of mm-hmm. the air compacting or whatever. Yeah. <sighs> and then they found that those little deep sea shrimpies <laughs> have compounds that help their tissues and proteins function better at higher pressure. And so we may be able to study those and understand something a bit better right, exactly. about how we could survive. After it was all done, Cameron donated the machine to oceanic scientists to better understand how to use the technology for diving. Mm-hmm. But while it was on a flatbed truck in Connecticut going around the country, the truck caught fire what? and seriously damaged the thing. I, I, it's like the, the abyss curse. I know. Son of abyss. Son of abyss. <laughs> and as of last year, they moved it to California for repairs. That's, That's fucking cool. So, okay, side note, obviously, so it's robotics that do all of the planet Earth ocean deep stuff, right? Yeah, Because we've I think seen so. some crazy shit on there. There may be some, like, I don't know how deep they go because like i mean cameron was talking about it like it felt like being on the moon Mm -hmm. like that's how desolate the ocean was at that depth but there was still life Mm -hmm. it just wasn't like you know like the angler fish and like the crazy stuff with that you see is not at that depth right and so i don't know about planet earth and how much they can go with some manned expeditions but i'm sure a lot of that is robotics well and i think what's extra poignant about the exosuit thing is just being able wanting to be able to interact in their environment right it's not us just seeing footage it's like an actual person being like let me use this syringe on Mm -hmm. you now of course i'm always concerned about what that's going to mean like in terms of disrupting habitats or potential Mm -hmm. exploitation opportunities or whatever. But I love this whole concept of bioluminescence and they've mentioned it a couple of times on the ocean deep episodes, right? Where Mm -hmm. you're just like, what are these fucking weird ass fish that just like flash these lights? Right. Yeah, And sometimes there's like stuff that shows up on like beaches and there's like bioluminescent jellyfish and stuff like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so far scientists have only identified 180 species of bioluminescent fish, but they're convinced that there's many more. Right. So in some ways, the exosuit stuff is just a fact finding mission. But studying bioluminescent beings has serious implications for humans because there's at least one protein, if not several more proteins, that exist inside bioluminescent creatures that has a similar counterpart in the human brain. So in the 60s, there was a protein called the green protein that was discovered in a certain type of jellyfish, the Aquaria victoria. I'm not sure if you say that. But scientists at that time were able to watch processes like the development of nerve cells in the brain that up until that point had been invisible to them. So that study actually eventually won these three scientists the 2008 Nobel Prize for chemistry. 
Mm. Which was cool. But basically, like... Sounds like they deserved it. Yes, definitely. Because as you were saying before, it's like scientists could potentially unlock a lot of information about how our brains signal, like how they deteriorate. They could apply the research to epilepsy research, Alzheimer's, Mm. cancer detection, and so on. So in those terms of being able to, like, harness the power of the bioluminescent fish, that's... I mean, knowledge is power now. Yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah. Like, I think that the compound that they found in those deep sea shrimps that help the tissue function better at high pressure. <laughs> yeah, was do- that that? Does have to do with this, the proteins that can stop Alzheimer's that are like in the lab right now. So oh. they're like finding correlations between these things, and I don't know that they're actually going to like lead to definitive right. Alzheimer's cures or anything right. like that. But well, we don't necessarily know how or why they're communicating, but we do know that they're communicating in some way. Mm-hmm. And I just think further understanding, and per- perhaps because these organisms are more simplistic in that way, or at the very least, they're fucking see-through. Mm-hmm. You know, we could understand ourselves a little bit better. Man, I want to bioluminesce. I want to turn on a little nightlight on my finger, like E.T. or something. The essence of bio is lumen. <laughs> oh, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> now who's cruising for a bruiser? Yeah. The chlorine. Let's find let's, out. Let's take it back to the chlorine. Well, maybe one of the reasons you didn't know about this is because you're not a blonde. And yeah. I am a blonde. <laughs> That's true. Oh, does this only happen to people who are blonde? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's probably, like, there's something that is done to mm. brunettes. You just can't see it because it's you're just not a toehead. It blends in. <laughs> like me. <laughs> now, most people, not Jeff, but most people are <laughs> under the impression that chlorine is to blame for turning blonde hair green in the swimming pool. But it turns out that chlorine is not the main enemy is simply a wingman in this little dance. Hmm. Copper is the culprit. Oh, really? Now, copper is a metal found in some swimming pools, particularly ones that are filled using well water. So the copper in the water is oxidized by chlorine, which then binds to the proteins in the hair strands. The metal will produce a green tint in the hair, like Lady Liberty. I was going to say, yeah. She She was copper, and then she turned green in the ocean. Yeah. These are women's issues, man. (laughs) (laughs) Lady Liberty was a lady. (laughs) Probably a blonde. Probably a blonde. <laughs> now, <laughs> so, because well, this is one thing, like, I was on the swim team, and I would constantly get, you know, green hair, and it was mostly because I didn't like to shower, because really, <laughs> like, all you have to do is rinse your fucking hair out. Okay. Now, so. How co- long does it stay green for? Or I mean, you- I have, I know that my third grade picture, my hair is clearly <laughs> green. I'm also wearing a shirt saying, go ahead, make my day <laughs> with green hair. It was like a lot going on with me at that time. Giant glasses, giant glasses. Now, copper can also enter the pool water from certain copper-based algae sides. So, you know, you could not use copper-based algae sides. That's one way to avoid it. What's also cool is apparently even in a saltwater pool, you could still have your hair turn green because in a saltwater pool, instead of adding chlorine, you add salt, which runs through an electrically charged generator, which turns the salt into chlorine. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, then what's you, the point of having it be different? Did you know that that's what a saltwater pool was? I did not know that. Because uh, I hold, I was like, ah, oh, it's more natural and organic, true life. And then it's just like, <laughs> it's you put some like... other shit in there that turns it to chlorine. So in the same way, if you have copper in the water, it'll oxidize and the scoodly doots. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Lady Liberty and blonde women everywhere know what I do not. And now <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So did you have any favorite lines? Uh, I did not have any favorite lines. However, I did have a, I had a couple of anecdotes. 
apparently Bud and Lindsay's rocky relationship, which, you know, the trailer even has him being like, I hate that bitch. Yeah, that's how she's introduced. Right. <laughs> High heels, long legs, total bitch. But anyway, so Bud and Lindsay's rocky relationship may have been an unconscious mirror of the divorce James Cameron was going through at the time with producer Gail Ann Hurd. Mm. His life and art often imitate each other, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, they yeah. certainly do. But those two ended up in the end together. Him and, him and Gail Ann Hurd? No, Bud and Lindsay. <laughs> oh, I was like, what? <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> it's not like at the evening. No, they did not. But Gail Ann Hurd is an incredible person who mm-hmm. still is a major producer. What I know of her most recently was she's the producer of The Walking Dead. She's the reason that's on the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like when Cameron dumps you that you're just... Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I, me- I just meant she's an incredible person. Okay. The final thing was, I don't know if you knew this, but... Apparently, for financial reasons, the deep core set was never actually dismantled. It stood in the abandoned nuclear power plant where the film was shot. And like 20th Century Fox had all these posted signs saying that like Fox still owns the set and the designs and like, you know, copyright, copyright. No shit. Yeah. And then it was finally demolished in 2007 during a reconstruction project. Oh, I feel like there should be some stuff where you're like, just fucking keep it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what they turned it into. Maybe they turned it into something wicked cool. Well, that was like a nuclear plant that was half built. And I think it's still half built. Yeah, like it was half built when they even went in there, but right. then they were just like, uh, th- that's also funny to think that like this movie just fucked everybody financially, that they're like, just <laughs> fucking leave it leave there. It. I'll pick it up later. <laughs> we've definitely yeah. done that where we've done a show and been like, fuck it. We'll come back tomorrow for our things. Yeah. <laughs> just like leave it a complete disaster. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, well, well. Did you have any favorite lines? I did not. I didn't write any down, at least. I mean, there's so many nice little one-liners. I mean, I have a favorite kind of, like, character moment, which is Ed Harris. Like, at one point, he loses his ring down, like, the toilet and then, like, gets it back. Oh, yeah. And then the water is flooding into the thing and he's running and, like, a heavy door is closing and it's going to lock him into an area where he's going to drown. And he puts his hand into the doorway and his wedding ring opens the door. It keeps the door open and allows him to survive. The, the scene it's pretty amazing I do love that about Cameron there's always fucking heart man yeah. even if it's like a little on the nose it's often old, on the nose it's but... often extremely <laughs> on the nose but I still love it when oh, he does yeah. it yeah because I think you don't have to lose one right mm-hmm. you don't have to Michael Bay it out and like just lose all the soul and humanity right it's like, well can... Michael Bay wishes he was James Cameron right. and they're, like in every level I know. down to being an asshole so it's I guess at the end of this it's like ah fucking James Cameron was just pushing his actors so hard and that's mm-hmm. just wrong but then it's like for a purpose yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'm like i'm not gonna tell you to not do that (laughs) maybe not underwater yeah well speaking of telling people to not do that next week we're doing evolution so get ready for that (laughs) do that (laughs) but it's gonna be a really fun episode we're gonna have a guest my good friend ryan kazmiski and if you guys could please rate and review us on itunes please Find us at Oh That's a Thing on Facebook and Twitter and .com. You can find me at It's a Joy Amia on Twitter and Insta. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you guys have a wonderful week. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.